Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the pastoral letters. Uh, today we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul, of course, is writing to Timothy to give him guidance as he pastors the church in Ephesus. He sent him there because of concerns about false doctrine that was being taught, and Paul says there should be a real focus on sound doctrine accompanied with godly living. Paul also gives Timothy guidance on practical issues in the church, uh, all in the context of godliness. And the verses that we're considering today are in that category. He writes with instructions for all who were under the yoke as slaves. The reality is the majority of the members of the church were probably slaves. Economically and politically, Society in the first century of the Roman Empire really was based on slavery. Now, I've seen estimates that anywhere from one-half to two-thirds of the population were actually slaves. But it's, it, it, that's not all that what we would think it could be because slaves included doctors. They included educators. They included professional people. So it was very interesting that that's what the situation was. And like I said, surely there was, there was a lot, and probably even the majority of the people in the church would be considered slaves. So it was right and important to address this. So let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. There's three main things that we're going to talk about from this text. First, we're going to consider what it means to be under the yoke of slavery. Second, we're going to see what Paul says about honoring the Lord when under the yoke of slavery. And then third, we're going to talk about the fact that really the whole Christian life is actually a life of living as a slave, as a faithful servant. So we begin by considering what it means to be under the yoke of slavery. People wonder, and I understand this, why the New Testament writers did not speak out directly against slavery. <coughs> Before we look at what the New Testament says about slavery, I want us to look at what the Old Testament says. So, first thing we're going to notice is this. The Old Testament categories of slavery. Old Testament categories of slavery. This is something virtually none of the commentaries do. And I don't fully understand it, to be honest. It seems like if you're going to understand an issue from a biblical perspective... And you've got something like the Old Testament that speaks to it a lot. Seems like it's not good just to ignore it. So we're not going to ignore it. In fact, there are some Old Testament categories of slavery that may give some reason on why the New Testament writers didn't talk about, about the evils of slavery. That's because in the Old Testament, slavery was permitted under certain specific circumstances. And I'm going to give you three examples. First, when a person had committed a crime against another person, 
In order to repay the victim of the crime, the criminal could be sentenced to be the victim's slave until the crime debt was paid. And you may know that sometimes the crime debt could be, they had to pay back so oftentimes as much as five times what they took or what they destroyed, whatever. We're told this in Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3. This law speaks of what should happen to a thief. It said that he's to make restitution to the victim for the things that he stole. And then it says this, if he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So in other words, he pays for what he stole by working as a slave. And it can even be that he is the slave of the one that he stole from until everything is paid back. This is an example of how the Bible's view of justice and addressing these kind of criminal type elements is different than the way our country looks at it. In our country, we talk about somebody being put in prison to pay their debt to society. In the Bible, you paid your debt to the victim. I would personally be in favor of that myself. I think that'd be a great change. So if this was the reason that some people were slaves in the Roman Empire, I can see how Paul wouldn't speak against it. Second example, one person could become the servant of another person as a means of paying off a debt that they owed them. In Leviticus 25, we see that a man can become so poor that they sell themselves to another man to be his slave. However, if he was a fellow Jew, the landowner was to consider him as a hired hand and pay him and then release him from his service at the end of the seventh year of the sabbatical year and then year of Jubilee and so forth. So we may speak of this as being like an indentured servant. Uh, this is similar, interesting enough, to what the pilgrims did when they came to the New World on the Mayflower. They actually indebted themselves to a number of benefactors to finance their journey. And they were under very specific obligations from those benefactors for a number of years until they paid back and made sure that their benefactors got the, pro got the profit that they were looking for. So in many ways, the pilgrims came to, our, to, our, to the new world as indentured servants. A third example, a person could voluntarily become the lifelong slave of another. In Exodus 21, we read of a person who had become a slave, who had, who had become a slave for whatever reason, and then choose not to accept freedom when that was offered. Instead, he would, they would say, they would take his ear, you may remember this, take his ear and kind of put it up against the doorpost and, and use an owl, A-W-L, to kind of to poke a hole, to pierce his ear, to signify that he would permanently serve this master. There may very well have been slaves in the Roman Empire who made this same choice to choose to remain as a slave. So there were several situations. There's other things that the Bible says about, Old Testament says about slavery, but these are some of the ones that I think could apply here. So there are several situations in the Old Testament where slavery was permitted. Uh, Paul would have been very familiar with these Old Testament civil laws. Now, whether these things entered in or not, 
It's true that both Paul and Peter spoke of the relationship of master and slave and never actually condemned the institution of slavery. Paul came closest to it probably in his letter to Philemon um, as he really strongly encourages Philemon to, turn, to, to let his uh, servant Onesimus go free. It's also spoken of in Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, and Peter speaks of the relationship of masters and slaves in 1 Peter 2. The common explanation for why they did not condemn the institution of slavery is because slavery was such an ingrained part of the society that if Christians pressed for the abolition of slavery, it would throw society into chaos, and Christians would be to blame. So, better to let the gospel just take its course and have the fact that people were free in Christ, penetrate the culture, make it clear that slavery was wrong. And Paul set the stage for this in Galatians 3.28 when he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. One other thing, though, that is about slavery that is very clear in the Bible is this next point. Chattel slavery breaks God's law because it is man-stealing. When we think of slavery in our country, this is the kind of slavery that was in our country. It's the kind of slavery where people were actually property of others. I'm reading a book about Booker T. Washington, and he speaks of his uh, experiences of a as a slave, as a young boy. Actually, it was in 1865. He was nine years old, and he remembers a man coming and kind of reading the Emancipation Proclamation and let them know that you're free. And they were all like, what does that mean? You know, how do we do this? I've also read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, and he speaks of terrible treatment that he received as a slave. He also speaks of the kindness of a particular woman who taught him how to read. It was uh, not allowed, strongly frowned on by many, to teach the slaves how to read because that would make it easier for them to improve themselves. You may not know this, but the, in the 1930s, there was, a pro, there was a program called the Federal Writers Project of the Works Progress Administration. Even those initials would be hard to understand, hard to remember. They interviewed over 2,000 former slaves, this was in the 1930s, that, that were still living, and they were from 17 different states to get first-person commentary on what they experienced. It's called the Slave Narrative Connect Collection. You can buy these slave narratives on Amazon. They're there. Most of them are divided according to states. You know, you can see the different testimonies, you know, the, of, of, of the ex-slaves that they gave. Um, there are testimonies of being treated very well. It's amazing how many of them said that. There's also testimonies of being treated horribly. But one thing that I kept feeling, and I have, I've only read a small portion, you know, of, of, those, of those testimonials, but one thing that I would keep feeling, even those who would speak about the kind treatment they received, to me there was always such a sadness connected with it because they were still slaves. They were owned by the people they were serving. So even those who were treated kindly were still chattel slavery. The Bible speaks with very with real clarity to the sinfulness, the wickedness 
of owning another person as a piece of property. It's first a violation of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. In chattel slavery, a person is taken against their will, forced into slavery, or sold to someone else as a slave. The biblical penalty for this evil crime is very clear. Ecclesiastes 21.16 says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So it's sobering, and it's also helpful to see that the Bible prescribes the death penalty for one involved in the slave trade. Serious, serious violation of God's law. So, those are some of the things about what it is to be under the yoke of slavery. Second main point that we see this morning is this. Paul had some clear directions for those who were under the yoke as slaves. So, point number two. God calls his people to honor him when they are under the yoke of slavery. As we noticed, slavery was very common in the Roman Empire. Such a mixed bag that you could even have see doctors and educators and professional people in that category of being slaves. So how were believers to live when they were enslaved? Well, Paul speaks of three things in particular. First, the believer is to live in such a way that the name of God, the name of God will not be spoken against. Verse 1, all who are under the yoke of sl as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So to regard the masters as worthy of all honor really would, would involve several things. It would include showing respect for the position. Even if the person was not a person of good character, there was a respect shown for the position that they held. Honor would also involve doing what they tell you to do. Be a person who can be counted on in your job. Now we should also add here that this speaks of being obedient to instructions that were lawful. Uh, it is not, which you're not, you're not being asked to do something illegal, not being asked to do something that was inconsistent, that was a violation of God's law. If one is being asked to do something that was clearly sinful, they needed to appeal or and refuse if changes were not made to the job that you're told to do. Now, the reasoning behind this about doing this is that the name of God will not be spoken against because of uh, a believer's behavior. If the master is an unbeliever, then his servant's actions will either be a good testimony or a bad testimony. So if he continually sees disrespect, disobedience from one who claims to be a Christian, he would have to really begin to wonder what kind of God this servant really serves. What is this God really like? Is he a good God? Is he a God who can be trusted? Is he a holy and righteous God, or does he just merely wink at disobedience? Is he a God who is involved in the lives of his people at all? Or is he okay with those who claim to be his followers living any way they want to live? So we do not want to live in such a way that people who see how we live have reason to think poorly of the God that we serve. Second, Paul says, the believer is to live in such a way that gospel-centered doctrine will be honored and not rejected. Gospel doctrine tells us several things. 
It tells us that there is one God, and that one true God is holy, just, righteous, holy. It tells us that all people fail to live up to God's righteous standards. We're all sinners. As a result of that, gospel doctrine tells us that all mankind is under his wrath. We all deserve eternal condemnation for the way that we have lived. But gospel doctrine also tells us that God in his loving grace sent his son into the world. Jesus, the son of God, lived a perfectly righteous, holy life. He was crucified and he died as a substitute for sinners. Gospel doctrine tells us when he was raised from the dead that he fully accomplished salvation for all who would believe and follow him as Lord. Following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would include honoring those who are in authority over you. That's part of following him as Lord. It includes showing respect and being obedient to all lawful requirements that were made of us. So if believers don't do that, then they give those who watch reason to speak against the gospel-centered doctrine that we believe. People would have reason to be skeptical of the gospel because of, 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 because of the claims that the Bible makes, because in our lives should actually encourage people to want to look into the gospel and not reject it. I heard, <laughs> I love listening to that lady pray for whales. That was so moving to me. I mean, just, I, it was just very moving. But she prayed something, and I thought, Lord, help me remember that phrase she just said. And I don't know, I, I, I've got part of it in my mind. But her prayer was, you know, that, that, the, that the believers there would live in such a way, I think she said it like this, that unbelievers would be astonished and would flow in to the kingdom of God. That's what we want. We want unbelievers to be astonished because of what they see and how the Christians live their lives. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is deeply concerned, you can tell, he's deeply concerned about the honor and glory of God. He's deeply concerned that, that, that believers would, who, that would not only believe the gospel, but live out the gospel. And this makes sense. Again, he's told us, we are the church of the living God. That's who we are. And that should motivate us in all the things that we do. Paul then speaks of a third way that believers honor the Lord when under the yoke of slavery. The believer is to serve the Lord by serving the brethren, by serving the brethren. Verse 1 is especially focused on believers who were serving non-Christian masters. Now we read this in verse 2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are, benef are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. So now Paul speaks to those who are serving under Christians. He is concerned that the one doing the serving will be tempted to slack off, show disrespect to their masters because they were a fellow believer. Maybe they were even in the same church. It could even, it's, it's, it's possible, I would say it's very possible that there, could be, that there could be slaves who were serving as elders in the church. And the masters were part of the congregation. That could easily have been happening because slavery was so common. You imagine how that's going to mix things up? What a challenge that's going to be? 
So he's saying you need to guard your attitude. It should never be said that the slaves who are Christians are not as dependable and not as responsible as the slaves who are not Christians. Once again, this would give a terrible witness to others. This would not, it wouldn't glorify God. It would not speak well of the gospel. So instead of slacking off, Paul says, if your master is a believer, you should serve him all the more. And then he gives an additional reason beyond the honor of God's name and beyond the honor of the gospel doctrine. He says, do this because those who partake of the benefit are believers and are beloved. So the idea of partaking of the benefit, I mean, as Christians, we are concerned for one another. We are to have the same care for one another. We're to encourage one another. So even though it was a master-servant relationship, the believer should be glad to have the opportunity to help one another, help the master here partake of greater benefit. And both the master and servant are beloved of the Lord. They're both believers. That's another thing that gives them a camaraderie in spite of the difference in position. They're neither slave nor free in Christ. So as Christians, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that should encourage the believers to want to do what the, all that they can to serve one another in the best way possible. Okay, there's another application I want to make here. You notice the last thing Paul says there. He says, teach and preach these principles. He says, we need to make sure that you explain these things. Okay, well, you think about it. How do we teach and preach these principles when we don't have slavery? <laughs> thank the God. Thank the Lord we don't have slavery. Well, there's all kinds of biblical principles about slavery that relate to Christians. So that's what we're going to talk about here. Point three, I'm using a quote by Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell to sum up this one. Servitude is at the heart of the Christian calling. Servitude is at the heart of the Christian calling. I mean, the theme of service in conjunction with the relationship of God with his people is just all through the word of God. It's everywhere. So I think it's very appropriate to make some applications here beyond the ones made specifically to slaves and masters. I was doing a brief kind of a word study to see how often the word serve or servant was used in the Bible, those words show up hundreds and hundreds of times. And they often are used in descriptions of God's people. God's people are often called servants of God over and over again. So even though thankfully none of us here are under the yoke of slavery in a literal sense, we are all still very much slaves in another sense. So in this first point, we're reminded of this. Every believer is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's such a key part of our identity. In the Old Testament, Abraham is a servant of God. Jacob was a servant of God. Isaac was a servant of God. Moses, the servant of God. Caleb, Joshua, David, all the way through they're all at some point, you can find uh, descriptions of them describing them as servants of God. They were dearly loved as children of God, and that meant they were his committed servants. The two things go together, being dearly loved 
and being his servant. We see exhortations like this in Psalm 113.1, which says, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So as believers, we too are under the yoke as slaves. But that's not something to be seen as some kind of sour, drudgery type of relationship that we have with the Lord. It's not drudgery kind of service. It's the kind of service that gives joyful praise to the one true God for the privilege of being his servant. Our lives have been changed. If you're a Christian, you used to be a slave of sin and you're not anymore. Believers are no longer slaves of sin. We have a different master. And that's something to be grateful for. That's something to give thanks to. We are no longer slaves of Satan. We are no longer slaves of the world. We are glad-hearted slaves of our God. Back in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, Timothy is described as a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished, he says, on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. He's constantly learning from his master. In Acts 24, 14, Paul describes himself as serving the God of his fathers. In Acts 27, 23, Paul spoke of the fact that he belonged to God and he served him. Colossians 3, 22 and 23, it's one of those places where Paul speaks to those who are masters and servants. And here's what he says. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. So Paul once again calls on slaves to obey their masters, but here he gives a higher motivation. He says, don't just focus on pleasing men. Instead, you do your work heartily as to the Lord. That's what your focus is. Remember, it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you're serving. Being a servant of Christ is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. One of the ways that that's brought home to us is how we understand our battle with sin. Being a Christian, a servant of Jesus Christ, changes everything about how we deal with sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul deals with this. He uses this, this imagery in so many ways. That's so helpful to help us understand how our life has been changed, how our eternity has been changed, but how our life has been changed. So as Paul talks about the, how we live in relationship as far as with our battle with sin, our temptations, the image of being a slave continues to come up. I'm going to read several passages from Romans chapter 6. Chapter 6, 5 through 7 says, for if, we for if we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. He who has died is freed from sin. So in Christ, our old self has been crucified. As a result, we are no longer slaves of sin. 
Apart from Jesus Christ, every person is a slave of sin. Sin is the master over us, and that's the reality apart from Christ. But being in Christ changes everything. Shovel other verses for a moment. I'm going to skip down to chapter to, uh, from chapter 6 through verse 15. Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, meaning I'm using this imagery of slavery. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In speaking of these verses, Martin Lloyd-Jones made this comment, very simple comment. He says, man is either a slave to sin or else he's a slave to grace. According to the scriptures, no matter what your circumstances in life may be, you're a slave of something. Either sin or of grace. And if you're in Christ, you're a slave of grace, which means you're a slave of righteousness. Through Christ, God has changed the heart of every believer. We've been freed from sin and are instead now slaves of righteousness. So by God's grace, we're inclined to do what is right, inclined to do what is pleasing to him who is our Lord. So everyone here is under the yoke of slavery in some sense. Being a slave of righteousness through Christ causes us to want to honor our Lord and King, knowing that he's worthy of honor. So servitude is at the heart of our calling as Christians. You can't get away from the issue of slavery if you're a Christian. It's involved in every aspect of our life. So I want to expand on this. For example, we see our next point. Family relationships are to be characterized by serving. If you're married, then you're a servant to your spouse. The Bible says that you are. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To give yourself up for another person is to focus on serving them. Wives are told to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord. One of the ways that submission is expressed is in serving your husband. So in hundreds, hundreds of different ways all throughout the day, Husbands and wives are serving one another, serving their family. It's happening constantly, and it's supposed to. If you're a parent, you are constantly doing things to serve your children, caring for them, teaching them, training them, praying for them, being patient with them, doing without so your kids can have things that they need. I mean, investing multiplied thousands of dollars into their lives, and the list goes on and on. You can't be a parent without also being a servant. Children are called to honor and obey 
their parents. Included in honoring and obeying is being a servant. Children recognize the parents are their boss, so they do what they say. They recognize that their parents understand life better than they do, so they listen to them. When you do your chores, you are serving by doing your chores, whatever they might be. So as Christians, we are under the yoke of slavery in the way we live as families. Next, we need to see that workplace relationships are to be characterized by serving. It's one of the most obvious applications of Paul's instructions to masters and slaves. As we said, thankfully, the workplace in the United States is not based on slavery, but the principles still apply. Employees work for their employers in such a way that the name of God and the gospel not be spoken against. We serve the Lord by serving our employers. We want to make our employers successful. We want them to reap great benefits in their business. If they are Christians, we are even more focused on honoring them because we know that we are both serving the same God. In this passage here in 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't speak directly to the masters. It's at least implied, however, that they should conduct themselves in such a way to be worthy of the honor that Paul says they need to receive. Over in Colossians 4.1, Paul does address the masters. Here's what he says. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. <coughs> when employees are granted justice and fairness, the employer is serving them. He's being conscious of what is best for them. He's being conscious of what will make his employees most successful. That's being a servant. Every aspect of the life of the Christian is characterized by being a servant. So our final point is this. If one is to be great in God's kingdom, they must be a servant. If we're not a true servant, then we're really a failure in life. You've got to be one who is a servant. Every genuine Christian will be a servant, a slave. Our Savior was the perfect example of what a servant should be. He was prophesied in Isaiah as being the servant of the Lord, more specifically as the suffering servant. At the Last Supper, Jesus exemplified servanthood when he washed the disciples' feet. And then after he did that, he says, I've given you an example of how you should wash each other's feet. Be a servant, in other words, like I have been a servant to you. We'll close, I just want to close with some Jesus' amazing words in Mark 10, 43 to 45, about this very specific about this issue. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Jesus himself, the son of, the eternal son of God, came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for people who were slaves to sin. He came to give his life as a ransom, a payment to set them free. So if we would be great in God's kingdom, if we are to be pleasing to God, which is being great in God's kingdom, if we're to rightly love people, which is being great in God's kingdom, if we're to be real, genuine witnesses of the gospel, then we'll be slaves of all. We'll be under the yoke of slavery, under the yoke of Christ. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the image imagery that you give us as far as masters and slaves and in one sense it's something that we abhor because it's something that was part of our own history as far as our nation is concerned in another sense it really gives us a picture in a good way of our relationship to you and to each other Lord thank you for the work of just of just complete transformation that you would come and work in such a way, serve us in such a way that we could be freed from being slaves to sin. You have changed our lives and brought us into relationship with you as our master, as our Lord. Thank you for that privilege, for that identification of who we are in Christ. Lord, help us to continue to grow in that. Thank you for giving us that model of what it's like to serve one another. Lord, I think oftentimes we serve and just it just kind of comes naturally, and I thank you that that's true. I thank you that there's just something innate in us that recognizes the need to be kind, to be helpful, to serve others if we can. So I thank you for that. Lord, help us to continue to grow in our understanding of what it is to be a servant in whatever our relationships with other people might be. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, who has never submitted your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master and Savior, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I have been serving sin. I have been going the wrong direction in my life. So I want to turn away from my sin, and I want to turn towards you as my Savior and as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through, the, through, our, through our website. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray.